you know, most players don't think much about their strings because they just put on the strings that either their teacher or, or their friends tell them to use, and they, that's it. Um, a few players are very discriminating. They like to experiment with strings. And those type of players, oftentimes you'll find they may have four completely different strings on their instrument because that's what they find to, um, it works the best for their particular instrument. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and I began the Rosin the Bow project wanting to learn as much as I could about the violin family of instruments, their history, how they are made, where the wood comes from, how they are bought, sold, and collected. A subject I knew very little about was violin strings, so in 2015, my wife Paul and I boarded a train in New York City that took us out to Farmingdale, Long Island, where the headquarters of the Diodario Musical Strings Company is located inside a 110,000-square-foot factory. I was there to interview Fan Dow, Director of Research and Development at Diodario, the largest musical string manufacturing company in the world. Fan is a much sought-after expert on all things related to the violin, and recently finished a two-year term as president of the Violin Society of America. After giving us a tour of the Diodario factory, we sat down in his office to discuss the history and technology of violin strings. Here, then, is part one of a two-part podcast featuring that conversation. So then, how did you come to work here? Well, um, I was trained um, and worked as an um, electrical engineer in the Boston area for um, about 17 years. And, uh, but I met my wife at a summer chamber music camp in Bennington, Vermont. And she was from Long Island um, um, and... Her mother still lives about uh, five minutes away from my house here in Huntington. And uh, so she didn't want to move out to Boston. So I had to get a job um, down here in Long Island. And there aren't that many electrical engineering jobs in Long Island. But one day I happened to look in the New York Times, wanted help wanted ad, and there was a position for an acoustic engineer at um, D'Addario. And uh, I knew that um, Norman Pickering, who's my mentor, had worked at D'Addario, and, but I didn't know if he was still alive or uh, even working at D'Addario because um, you know, he was in his 80s at the time. He's still alive today. He's uh, about to reach 99 years old, but he's um, uh, mentally you know, still very sharp. And uh, so I applied, and I mentioned that I knew Norman by reputation and that I was, even though I was not an acoustic engineer, uh, knew nothing about strings. Um, I did play the violin. And uh, as it turns out, Norman was very much alive and still working for D'Addario, and they were working for somebody to take over his work because Norman was in his 80s. And I ended up getting the job because I was, of all the candidates, and there were numerous candidates that applied, um, I was the only one who actually played a bowed instrument. That's how I got the job. <laughs> Good story, yeah. Yeah. And uh, what instrument does your wife play? Uh, my wife is a flutist. Yeah. And do you still play music together? Uh, very rarely, because there's actually not that much repertory um, or chamber music for it, which is what I love to play, you know, for flute and strings. Uh, 
So, so how do you? What What was the first learning curve as you got into this particular work as an engineer? What, what How did you come at it? How did you think about the string already in terms of the player? It's. Um, um, I like most people, you know, coming because um, very few players um, knew, know anything about strings. And so we think of strings as a very simple thing. And, and for the most part, they are because pretty much all strings um, sound similar. They all sound like strings. But what's important to the player are all these nuances. Very small, subtle nuances make a big deal to the player. And um, so those are the tiny little things that are not obvious to the casual, you know, uh, person. And it's all those little nuances that um, takes a long time to learn about. And um, because the, the, the basics, you can learn very quickly. And, and, and Norman Pickering, my mentor, um, taught me all of that um, in the first year. But all the nuances, that takes, um, it's, a, it's a lifelong le learning process. It's, it's like learning an instrument. Um, it takes a, um, a long time to um, gain the experience. Can you give me an example of how he might have taught you, Norman, or um, to develop some of that? So I, I remember uh, one example of where Norman, um, he had me play a violin and in semitones. He just said, starting on the open G string, play a semitone scale slowly and tell me what you hear. And uh, I remember my response was, um, oh, all the notes sound very similar. And I can just see the look of his, on his eyes is like, oh, no, this is going to take a while to, to learn. But that was part of the learning process that, that even though um, all the notes, let's say, on the G string of your violin sound similar, each one has a little different characteristic. And you have to learn to hear and um, all the little nuances and the differences between um, those notes. And then how does the string itself the material, the design, the dimensions impact that those subtleties at the different tones. Mm -hmm. Well, the both the materials that that are used and 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 more importantly, um, the way they are used um, in the string will affect the actual sound in very sometimes in not so subtle ways, but oftentimes in much more subtle ways, and um, and so it um, manifests itself in in, in two different but um, interrelated ways. One is the obvious sound differences. But there's another difference that um, I didn't fully appreciate until much, much later, and uh, which is that what's important to players is not so much the sound per se, but the response of the string. Because the response sometimes is even more important than the sound. Any really good player, um, they're trained to make the sound that um, they want, that they hear in their head. And, and pretty much, unless um, they're playing a, an absolutely horrible instrument, um, most equipment, even mediocre equipment they have, they can make it sound the way they want it to sound. And that's why if you hand, um, you know, it's like Perlman or Pink and Zuckerman, um, a student, not so great student violin, they still sound like it's like Perlman and Pink and Zuckerman, and they'll make it sound fantastic. However, what they'll tell you is that the amount of effort they have to use to produce that sound is much greater. It's much more difficult to get the sound they want out of uh, an inferior piece of equipment. So 
Um, so with strings, um, the response is really important because yes, the player can get the sound they want, but they have to be, feel comfortable in getting the sound they want. So uh, one of the things that uh, we concentrate um, a lot on now, much more so than you know, uh, earlier 15 years ago when I first started designing string, is paying attention to the res response of the string and how that um, interacts with the player and you know, the way they bow the, um, the string, which of course then affects um, the response of the instrument. So you're always adapting to things like carbon bows coming into players using them or different ways the violins are set up or how they're used, whether electronic violins, mm -hmm. we were talking earlier. So I'd love you, if you would, mm -hmm. uh, let's go back and give me kind of a, a, a primer on mm -hmm. the history of the violin string. Mm -hmm. Because often what I think as a designer you must be doing is understanding what people already think is a good sound yep. because tradition has sort yep. of set that right. mark. And then to what degree do you try to keep replicating that sound? To what degree are you moving it? Or do other factors in the society in our sound environment impact then how sound yes. is changing and then the design of the string right. to give you that sound? I know it's very sophisticated. Yes, and, and one of the um, most important things to remember is that um, music has constantly been evolving stylistically and technique. They're, they're all tied together. But then the other piece that uh, people often forget is that equipment is a major um, part of it as well. So um, this is sort of the you know, chicken and the egg problem, which came first? Well, it's all tied together. As, um, as composers were... Um, um, got access to new types of equipment, of, of instruments and whatever, then it would stimulate their imaginations if they were stimulated, you know, if they found it interesting and possibly affect their compositional techniques and the styles. So if you look at the history of the violin, um, what a lot of people forget is that a Strad violin in its original condition from 300 years ago is very, very different than the Strad violin that a concert soloist plays today because it's been altered in, 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 in many ways. It's just it's superficially similar, but um, the fingerboard has been, um, a neck has been replaced. The, the bass bar has been um, probably enlarged. The strings, of course, are very, very different. The bow is completely different. So it's, um, but they were playing, remember, 300 years ago, they were playing music of 300 years ago. They weren't playing the music what violinists are playing today. So, so the sound con concept is very different. It has evolved. So it's give, constantly evolving. So give me the sense of the evolution of the string itself, just that component. Right, so the original strings um, were um, uh, made out of uh, natural materials, gut, uh, typically the small intestines of sheep. So gut has um, certain properties and one of the properties it has is that it's um, highly damped, so, uh, which means that the vibrations die away uh, quickly. So it provides a, a fairly a particular type of sound, which is fairly uh, warm when you bow it compared to a metal core string. However, another um, key um, aspect of gut is that the way you start a bow stroke and, and the way the note speaks is very, very different. And um, it's actually, um, in some ways, easier, in some ways more difficult. The bottom line is it requires a different bowing technique to play gut strings. And remember, they're playing 300 years ago gut strings with um, Baroque bows of that era. There weren't, remember, the modern 
tort bow was not invented until about 200 years ago. And that completely changed the course of violin playing. So we were talking earlier about monofilament and fishing line and right. its inconsistency. Yeah. There must be tremendous inconsistency in sheep gut. Yes, and the, one of the down, there, there are two major um, uh, drawbacks of gut. One is this inconsistency. It's a natural material. And I remember when I was young, I started on gut strings, and about one out of every 10 gut strings I would buy would be completely false. It was so false, it's not that the note was out of tune, it's just it would squawk. It would, you couldn't even vibrate properly. You just have to toss it into the trash. Okay. The other um, downside of gut is that it um, absorbs moisture like crazy, so it's highly sensitive to humidity and the weather. So you're always tuning. Yes, and you're always tuning. Yes, that's correct. And then, actually, there's a third um, disadvantage of gut, is that it, it um, breaks very easily, especially for the E string. And uh, the top, the, the tuning of the violin was pretty much determined um, by how uh, high can you tune before the gut string would break. And so the top string, if you've ever wondered why the top string of a violin is tuned to roughly an E, that's because you, if you tuned it higher than roughly an E with gut strings, then your chances of playing a concert um, you know, with a gut E string uh, without it breaking was probably, I don't know, not a whole lot greater than 50%. And so when um, steel violin E strings came, came along about 100 years ago, um, all of a sudden, a lot of players uh, switched to it, even though it sounded to them Horrible. It was a completely different sound. Wire steel E string versus gut E string. But they had the confidence that, oh, I don't have to worry about breaking my E string in concert. It's a fascinating process. I wonder mm -hmm. how that evolved where people, you know, maybe one tried it, a second tried it, but then there's this sudden change where they mm -hmm. all kind of decide because it did change the uh -huh. tone of the music that everyone was listening to yeah. and expecting to hear. Yes, absolutely. So it, it, it changed the, the, the basic sound of the violin because, you know, the E string on the violin is such an important part of the violin sound, especially, you know, playing solo type stuff. And uh, yeah, it's, it's altered uh, our perception of um, how we hear the violin. Um, I guess I can see today we go on the yeah. internet and yes. everybody start talking and, and uh -huh. almost come to that kind of hive mind collective decision. Okay, we're all doing this because... Uh -huh this will improve our playing in mm -hmm. this way. Mm -hmm. And eventually the audiences will adapt to it. Mm -hmm. And the patrons, the people paying for our music, right. and all the things that goes with that. But back then, mm -hmm. it would be curious to know how it was. You know, it was probably being uh -huh. that idea is going by horseback from one town to uh -huh. another. Where was the first E-string made? Do you have any idea? A steel E-string. Um, it was probably in Europe, but I, and, and I think, um, you know, one of our uh, competitors, uh, European string companies, uh, Tabastic Infield, um, I think they're credited basically with um, the invention of the modern violin steel E-string. If they didn't invent it, they were certainly the company that was responsible for popularizing it. And about what time would have that been? That was uh, about 100 years ago, more or less. In fact, Tomastic Infeld is one of the few string companies that never made gut strings because they started by making steel strings. So their interest was to get musicians to go in that direction. Yes, and because it was much more reliable. Yeah. Uh, so any more on the evolution of the string? So you went from gut now to steel on the E string, but you're well, still gut on the well, three other strings? Well, the gut, I sort of jumped 200 years because another thing to realize is that there are different types of gut strings. So when we talk about gut strings... You know, people have in mind this one type, but no, there are different types of gut strings. 
because depending how it's processed um, chemically, but also mechanically, which is how much twist you put into the gut, you can have very different properties um, in the, the sound and the response. And different regions, um, let's say, for example, in Italy, even, you know, remember, Italy was, um, did not become uh, a unified country. Some argue it's not even unified yet, but until um, recently, you know, over 100 years ago. And so each particular regional um, in Italy had their own culture, their own, you know, um, foods and cooking, and their own particular way, made, uh, their own particular method of making gut strings. And so if you read historical documents, you'll find that certain regions had um, um, certain reputations for making better strings or certain types of strings than others. You know, Naples was a, a um, particular area that were renowned for making great gut strings. But um, a string from, let's say, the Naples areas would probably behave very differently than a string you would buy from Venice. And I wonder what the qualities of the sheep themselves, where they were raised. I know, you know, certain wools, it's not so much how you process the wool, but mm -hmm. if you got the wool from a sheep that was at a high altitude, yeah. whether different So species. I suspect that, you know, that also plays into it. So, yeah, so you have a huge variety of, of qualities and, and also, you know, quality and consistency, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so then as we come into the modern age mm -hmm. and we begin to change mm -hmm. these strings, uh -huh. And you begin to wrap the gut strings with steel? Is that the next well, step? Well, the, the, the next step w w occurred um, uh, about 300 years ago, around Strad's time, which was um, wrapping the gut strings with metal. Because for the lower strings of an instrument, um, for it to vibrate at a lower frequency, you need to add more mass. Okay. Now, before windings, you just made the strings bigger and bigger in larger and larger in diameter. But there is a um, big problem with that, which is that technically it's called bending stiffness. A string uh, for it to vibrate completely harmonically, a string vibrates not only at the fundamental, but with overtones. And you want those overtones to be exactly harmonic, meaning that they're exact multiples of the fun fundamental. And for that to happen, the string has to be perfectly flexible. If it has any stiffness, it will not um, vibrate harmonically. The bottom strings of instruments were typically too thick, and they had very high bending stiffness, so they did not sound exactly in tune. Uh, but more importantly, the bowing action, when, you, uh, uh, when a string vibrates underneath uh, with, with a bow, the bowing action forces the string to vibrate harmonically. But if the string itself naturally doesn't want to, it's very difficult to start the bow, the, the start of the note with a bow. So that's why very thick strings are very difficult to bow. And so around 300 years ago, somebody figured out that, oh, if you can wrap it with fine wire, you can add mass but keep the diameters small. And so um, the first recorded um, uh, use of um, wound strings, metal strings, um, is around the time of Antonio Stradivari. And, and Bill Monocle, who you mentioned uh, earlier, you know, his theory is that um, if you look at um, Stradivari's work, he initially, his um, violas, violins, and cellos are all much larger. And then as he got older, he settled on smaller sizes for those instruments. And the theory is that the smaller sizes are easier to play, and with wound metal strings, he didn't have to use the big instruments to get 
more sound out of the lower registers. So that was the first major advancement in gut strings, which is uh, metal windings. Original metal windings, they had um, uh, fine silver and copper wire. Silver was probably more popular because copper corrodes very easily. Um, and uh, so silver became the de facto perceived high-quality metal winding for the lower strings of instruments. We were talking to a violin maker in France mm -hmm. and, and asking him why the Italian violins, mm -hmm. the old, particularly the old right. uh, uh, violins, mm -hmm. uh, were so much better uh, than the French violins. Mm -hmm. He said it was really a function of how the society was organized, that there was a lot more freedom uh, mm -hmm. in entrepreneurship and, mm -hmm. and innovation but you had guilds, you had all these constrictions. Mm -hmm. you know, certain people just weren't allowed to do something mm -hmm. with certain material under the mm -hmm. royal edicts and so mm -hmm. forth. And I'm just wondering, uh, you probably now have silversmiths involved in the violin trade for the first time. I mean, these were people who would have done, dealt with these metals. Do you have any background on any of that, how that evolved? No, I, I, I know very little about that. Um, just a few things I've heard from you know, other uh, makers and, and historians. Um, I mean, my mentor, Norman Pickering, because he's an engineer, he claims, well, you know, wound strings must have been made even earlier than, than Strad's time because they had um, methods for making fine, drawing fine silver wire uh, long before then. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, my comment back to Norman was that, well, Norman, if you were around 500 years ago, you would have figured that out. But... Um, but you weren't around 500 years ago, and, and so maybe some of these, maybe they didn't figure it out, you know, that, oh, they can actually use um, silver wire to wind uh, guts with until maybe Antonio Stradivari's time. Uh, right, and that's the history of ideas, which really yes. appeals to me. A friend of mine um, said that if you look at one of the wind-up Victrolas uh, uh -huh. that um, we play the records on, that all the material uh, technology, the way to make the springs and so forth existed as far back as the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. It was just the idea of how to put them together put them, in such yeah. a way. And he said, had the idea come mm -hmm. earlier, yeah. we could listen to Michelangelo or Da Vinci <laughs> speak. <laughs> speak, yes. Uh, which would be uh -huh. kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. that's right. Uh -huh. So uh, take me up to the modern day uh, with violin strings and the windings and then a different core material. Yeah, so the, the major advances in the uh, 20th century um, are now um, different uh, materials and synthetic materials. So the, the first obvious thing is that now a large, much larger variety of metal materials were available, um, first for windings, and uh, for example, you know, aluminum um, started to be made in the late 1800s. Initially it was incredibly expensive, but now during the um, through middle of the 1900s, aluminum started to get um, affordable and started to be used for um, especially the higher strings of the instruments because of the very uh, low densities of aluminum. And, um, well, you don't want to add that mass. Yes, you don't want to add that much, uh, well, that much mass. You only want to add a little, and if you try to use um, a high-density metal like um, silver, the windings would be so thin that it would be too fragile. And that's why, for example, aluminum is uh, typically used for the violin A string. You can get a decent thickness in the, the wrap material so it um, would last um, long enough and, um, and still a aluminum wrapped violin A string is still slightly smaller in diameter than a pure gut A string. Although a pure gut A string for the violin actually works very well because it's not too thick to, to work really well. And um, 
but a, if you ever try to play a pure gut G-string, um, it's really difficult to get going and start. It's, the response is very poor. So you definitely need a, um, a metal-wrapped uh, violin G-string. But in the 20th century, so we first had the first metal strings that you can use as cores. Um, initially, it only was popular for the E-string because it, uh, for the reasons I explained that uh, you didn't have to worry about breaking a gut E-string. But the sound was so different and so much brighter and more crass for the other strings that um, nobody really wanted to use um, metal um, core um, uh, violin strings for the, the DG strings, the, the lower strings. Um, then the next major advancement was probably in the um, 1950s when you've had um, the availability of um, synthetic materials like nylon. So that's when um, people first started experimenting with using monofilament nylon to replace the gut for um, classical guitar strings. Um, it turns out it's very difficult to wind um, on monofilament nylon. I'm sure people tried it. Um, I tried it myself just to see how difficult it was, and, and it's, uh, it's very difficult um, to, to put a good winding on it because it's so smooth and slippery. But eventually, um, um, somebody figured out that you can use a multifilament nylon, which are very fine individual strands, and you can wind, put a winding around it quite effectively. In addition, the windings themselves um, um, increase the damping because one of the disadvantages of metals and most modern materials is that it has much lower damping than um, gut. And so it results in a very bright sound uh, versus gut. So the first really successful, super successful um, multi-filament core violin string was made by Tomastic Infeld in the 1970s, I believe, because I remember being first exposed to them um, when I um, entered college. And people, everybody was saying, oh, you should try these. You know, they're, they're um, much more durable than, than gut strings. And, 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 um, and there were, it was called the dominant violin string. And, and it's still one of the most popular violin strings uh, that people play. Uh, but, since, but since then, um, we have uh, started to use other types of uh, high-tech synthetic materials. So for example, we, um, Norman Pickering and, and Dodero, we pioneered the use of a high-tech uh, polymer called uh, PEAK, polyether ether ketone, for the core of violin strings. And, uh, and now it's actually used quite a lot for, um, by our competitors as well for high-end uh, violin strings. The advantage of, of PEAK over nylon is that it's even, it's much more stable than nylon. A lot of people don't know that nylon actually absorbs quite a bit of moisture. It's actually quite unstable uh, with the temperature and humidity. It's just that it became popular because it was more stable than gut. Relative to gut, nylon is much more stable, but it still absorbs quite a bit of moisture. A material like peak absorbs abs almost absolutely no moisture, so it's very stable with respect to um, the environment. Could you describe that material a little bit more in terms of, to a general audience, what, what it is as compared to nylon? Or well, it's just, a, you know, nylon was one of the earliest successful um, polymers, but since then, uh, uh, you know, the um, um, chemists have developed a whole wide range of, of other high-tech um, um, polymers, you know, with different characteristics. So this particular polymer is um, very stable, with respect to humidity and temperature. It has a much higher melting point than nylon, and it also does not absorb any moisture, so it's very stable 
but it's also very expensive to make. So it's only used in very um, specific applications where stability and high temperature requirements are, are needed. And uh, because the, the material um, costs um, hundreds of dollars per pound versus maybe tens of dollars per pound for nylon. So um, it turns out the, the value, um, the cost of nylon in a violin string is, you know, a couple, you know, cent or two, it's, it's almost insignificant. But the cost of um, peak in a violin string is significant. So um, it's only used on the high-end strings. Is it a, a petroleum product derived uh, from petroleum? Yes, yeah. Like like most uh, polymers, it's, it's it's derived from petroleum products. Um, although some of the the newer um, uh, polymers that we're looking at and researching, you know, in our lab, trying to use uh, the chemical companies are are trying to to make some of this stuff from natural products. So there's a lot of, for example, polyesters I've read about that are derived from, let's say, um, castor bean oil, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're trying to make it more more renewable. Yeah, this brings up the poet in uh -huh. me. What, you know, the source of the material that you're now making music uh -huh. with. A friend of mine made me a, a microphone, a custom yeah. microphone, a, f a few years ago, and he used a um, a tube. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people like to put these uh, mm -hmm. vacuum tubes, and they're yep. very hard to find the old right. tubes because yep. they don't make them. Yep. But his was a Raytheon tube that had been made back in the 1950s for right. intercontinental missiles. Right. So it's like rated to 400 Gs or something. Right. And, uh -huh. Crazy thing. Uh -huh. So he was saying, well, you could drop this microphone, everything else would break, but not that, <laughs> no, no, not not that, that. tube. Uh -huh. The thing that I immediately thought of was the old idea of beating uh, swords into plowshares. Yes. Uh -huh. you know, how we can take one, um, one material that was intended for some other use. Mm -hmm. And I don't know to what extent nylons really were developed, or let's say more, much more rapidly because mm -hmm. of the Second World War, mm -hmm. uh, their uses. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of mind that thinks of how to use these materials. And mm -hmm. now we're, in, we're talking about the use of these materials mm -hmm. in something, to me, that almost is sacred, which mm -hmm. is music, and, yeah. and something that I think yeah. calls to people's uh -huh. souls in a different way. Uh -huh. So any thoughts you have on that in terms of the kind of materials and the materials you like to work with and, and intrigue your imagination? Well, I mean, it... Um you know, a string is is a very small you know amount of material that's that's in it, and um, in fact, that's one of the um, the difficulties working with strings. Let's say versus a violin, where you have a lot more material to work with and potentially uh, more freedom, therefore, to try different things. But um, with strings, well, it, you know, it's it's very small, and there's only so much you can do. Although even um, within that restriction. I think there are a lot more things that um, can be tried that people actually haven't tried. And so some of those things, you know, I've tried and, of course, um, discovered why perhaps they were never adapted because it didn't work. But other things, you know, in some of our strings, um, um, we've tried to use things in different ways and discovered, oh, it actually works very well. So there, there's still uh, room for innovation in strings. I mean, I don't really think of the materials romantically, because I'm an engineer, okay, um, by training. I'm not a musician. So, so I, I, I view materials as, as very utilitarian. You know, I have to make them do certain things. And what properties do they have? How can I make best use of them? And, and also because we, we no longer make gut strings. We used to, uh, when the, the Kaplan String Company did make gut strings, and we made gut strings until about, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But we've decided that that was an area of, you know, of specialized expertise that we really didn't have because a lot of it is in processing the gut. So we decided to um, uh, concentrate on um, 
on developing strings using uh, metals and, and uh, modern materials. So as a large company, a mass market company, mm-hmm. has got string manufacturing really become this boutique, almost a craft beer kind of world where you have these makers making gut strings for certain instruments for the Baroque players. and Yeah, that, that, that's my understanding. I mean, there's only one real mainstream uh, company that still makes gut string. That's Perastro, uh, based in um, Germany. Although originally, I, I'm sure they were Italian, just like uh, Daddario were. But uh, for those players that are using gut strings per, predominantly for Baroque, you know, earlier periods, yeah, they, they tend to use a lot of um, strings from small boutique shops that are either one, two, three person shops. Yeah. It's interesting. It's really yeah. interesting. So uh, the Kaplan came out with mm-hmm. the non-singing E string mm-hmm. uh, at one point, I, if I, my memory serves me. Mm-hmm. Talk about, what is that in design? Okay. Well, that's actually the, I call it the non-whistling uh, E string. Because, because there's a couple of the sort of squeaks and squawks you get from when you um, um, start a note on a violin if you don't start it correctly. And Technically speaking, I, I, I decided to call um, most of those squeaks and squawks. Those squeaks and squawks occur when um, you don't use the optimal combination of um, low force and acceleration, particularly in the start of a note. Um, but the whistling E string is a um, separate distinct phenomenon. It's, called, it's caused by the, um, the steel wire, um, instead of vibrating side to side, which is what you would expect the string to do. We call that transverse um, vibration. It's actually vibrating in a torsional mode, meaning it's twisting. And, um, and so I remember reading um, an um, article about it, like my first year I was working here, and the article said that it's caused by the torsional mode because they made a particular measurement, a fairly sophisticated measurement um, on it. And they said, and you can calculate that uh, frequency. It's, uh, I think it's like 4.7 kilohertz for, for steel strings. So I remember um, after reading that article, I spent the whole morning trying to practice how to whistle it. Now, you know, all my life as a uh, violinist, I've been trying to suppress it. So I had to practice how to do it so I can make a frequency measurement on it because I want to verify f- for myself that that was the frequency. And sure enough, um, yeah, it was about 4.7 kilohertz. I remember that. And, uh, and the reason why um, a steel string uh, whistles is that, um, first of all, it has very low damping, especially in a torsional mode. So it means that once it gets started, it doesn't want to stop. Uh, the, the other thing is that the whistling um, typically occurs only when you on a string crossing. It rarely occurs when you start a note or in a bow change. And, and, and the reasons are, are, are the following, is that um, the, the reason why the, the whistling is occurring is that the conditions for the starting of the, the whistling torsional mode is now um, favored over the starting of the transfer, transverse mode. And when you do a string crossing, the bow is moving at a very rapid, um, it's already moving at a high speed, so when it hits, the, um, the E string, open E string, has a very high acceleration factor. In fact, that the high acceleration factor is too high to be optimal to start the transverse mode. And it favors the torsional mode. And that's why the string whistles. Now, the, so the non-whistling E string, the Kaplan non-whistling E string that I designed, happened to be one of the easiest strings, the quickest strings I ever designed. I wish all the other strings I designed were so easy and quick. <laughs> 
but I only made two prototypes. You know, I thought about it. I said, oh, you know, one of the things I could do is um, you can wind it. Now, there are wound E-strings. And so wind, wound E-strings are typically more whistle resistance because the winding adds um, damping, especially torsional damping. Um, but the other thing I realized is, why don't I try winding on a stranded steel core? Because the stranded steel core will, number one, lower that torsional frequency by a lot. And number two, it has much more higher torsional damping as well because of the straining of the steel core. It's not a solid piece of steel. So, so I married those two technologies together. Plus, I stuffed the string full of our damping compound. So, whammo. Um, the first one I tried it, of course, it didn't whistle, but it, um, it had some you know, non-optimal property, but I quickly just uh, tweaked it. And then the second version, which is the exact same version we've been shipping um, ever since you know, 14, 15 years ago, was that version. And um, it has a much um, warmer, sweeter sound than a um, standard uh, uh, steel E-string. And it's almost guaranteed not to whistle. It's, it, it is by far the most whistle-resistant um, E-string out there. And is there any trade-off to use that versus the more standard E-string? All strings, um, there, there's, uh, there's no perfect string out there um, because um, each string has different characteristics. So you have to optimize the string for the instrument, match it to the instrument, and to the player's own playing style and their preferences. And so for the, the Kaplan non-whistling E-string, because it has slightly lower torsional stiffness, you cannot um, use as much bow force on it. It requires a slightly different style of playing. Although I can tell you, you can play it almost just as loud as a regular steel E-string. You just have to play it differently. And uh, so this is an example where um, um, not all players are willing to want to or, or, or have the capability of adapting or changing their bowing style. Um, to accommodate to that particular string. So, and so I know some players love it, but other players, most of the modern players are used to playing a solid steel E string and using a lot of bow force on it. And uh, so the non-whistling E string, at least the Kaplan non-whistling E string, doesn't fit their particular playing style as well. And they have a technique that doesn't really have that problem for them usually. Well, no, I, I've heard the world's best violinists whistle their <laughs> open E string. The, the problem is that um, it, it's, it's not that difficult to suppress the whistling on the E string if you know what you, you have to do. The problem is that oftentimes musically, that may be at odds with what musically you want to do. I know this. Uh, yeah. We play a lot of uh, unison mm -hmm. um, in in. The fiddling I do, which mm -hmm. is you know, this more rural country mm -hmm. type fiddling, a lot of uh, unisons where you'll go up mm -hmm. and and play, and then that's where sometimes you'll you'll get that whistling going on. Mm -hmm. and you have to really understand what's happening. Yeah. So so basically, to suppress the open. Oh, oh, the other thing, of course, is that it rarely happens with a stop note because you, when you put your finger down on the E string, that adds a lot of damping, torsional damping. So it almost always happens on an uh, on the open E string, and it also happens. Um, both on an up bow and a down bow. I can demonstrate this. Although, you know, some people think that it only happens up on a down bow. Well, the reason they think that is that most of the time when you're crossing through the E string, you're on a down bow, much more often than you're on an up bow. I also heard somebody else claim that, that um, the magical thing is that um, if you play 
the D, you know, a D, it causes the E string to, more likely to cause the E string to whistle. But I pointed out to that person, well, the most common note that you play before the open E is the D natural. That's why you think that. But, you know, I, I've done demonstrations where, I, you know, I can whistle on e, open E string, you know, on up bow, down bow, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the main thing is that um, you want to use, yes, you want to use slightly more bow force in conjunction with um, slower bow speed because that will reduce the acceleration when you hit the open E string. Now, the reason why often it doesn't work on a practical basis for most players is that um, most of the time, uh, players, when they use more bow force or increase their bow force, they often en end up um, jerking the bow and increasing the bow speed rather than slowing it down. And that's why just increasing the bow force by itself often doesn't work. You have to have really good technique and be able to slow down the bow speed right um, before you hit the E string. Um, one, one, one way of actually thinking about it is actually moving closer to the bridge because typically if you move closer to the bridge, you will use more bow force and slow down the bow. And in fact, that is uh, what um, uh, Carl Flesch recommends in his classic uh, um, book on the art of the violin playing. So let's talk a little bit about this uh, whole other group of people that are playing the violin that mm -hmm. are not in what we would call the classical world, mm -hmm. playing the classical repertoire. Yeah. And some of them are playing with solid core, steel mm -hmm. core strings, wrap yeah. strings and uh -huh. things. So you're, you're providing inst um, strings for that, uh -huh. for that customer base too. Yes. Uh -huh. y yes, we do. Now, as I said before, um, steel... Um, has very low damping. So it, it results in a very bright string. And the other thing is that um, the damping affects the bowing response um, because if you have very low damping, it's, um, it causes the string to much more easily to whistle, uh, not whistle, but to um, squeak and squawk at the start of the bow stroke. So steel core strings traditionally have this reputation of being very bright and easy to squeak and squawk. We put a damping compound um, inside most of our strings, and we optimize the amount of damping so we don't want to make it um, too bright or too dead sounding. And uh, it's so, like a powder material. I mean, what? No, it's actually a very sticky, um, you know, thick, gooey material. And yeah, and um, <laughs> we're not the only company that have has developed this technology. Um, and the um, so our steel core strings, um, for the most part, are very warm sounding. We, we don't make them very, very bright. And now one of the reasons why steel core strings are used, I mean, some, some players do want the really bright sound. And I would say for those players, then our steel core strings are probably not um, optimal for them. But the reason why a lot of uh, um, non-classical players like to use steel core strings is because a lot, a lot of their techniques involve very rapid string crossings. And this really small diameter of steel core strings is an advantage there because they can get the notes started really quickly back and forth, you know. And uh, so with our steel core strings, whether they're playing preludes or, or um, helicores, they're, we put damping in them so you can get the advantage of, or if you, if you don't like a really super bright sound and the squeaks and squawks, you don't have to put up with that because you can use our helicores and still have the advantage of small diameter strings that respond really quickly to rapid bow crossings. Just makes so much sense to me the way I play. And mm -hmm. how common is it for musicians 
not to buy a full set of one type of string, but to, you know, over time realize, well, I like this brand for my mm -hmm. D string, this for my A, and and so you're marketing to that kind of musician mm -hmm. individual strings. That depends on the instrument. Um, certainly for, I would say for violin, except for the E string, which a lot of players might use a different brand of E strings, most players, most violinists use the same strings or the bottom three strings. Very similar for violists. Most violists um, will use um, a different A string than the bottom three strings. Now, if you go to cello, the standard setup for, for cellos, uh, for cellists today, um, the most common one for the high-end players, are different brands for the top and bottom strings. That the top, you know, um, A and D strings is one brand, and the bottom G and C strings is a, another different brand. And so it depends on the instrument, but also depends on a particular player. Um, you know, most players don't think much about their strings because they just put on the strings that either their teacher or, or their friends tell them to use, and they, that's it. Um, a few players are very discriminating. They like to experiment with strings. And those type of players, oftentimes you'll find they may have four completely different strings on their instrument because that's what they find to um, is works the best for their particular instrument. And uh, I certainly encourage players to experiment because I, uh, I tell them there is no single ideal optimal string for all situations. We make a wide variety of, of strings because it depends on the instrument and your playing style, and so do our competitors. And um, the, the challenge is that it often takes time to experiment with strings. And you know that's a real practical problem, um, especially if you're playing a lower instrument like cello, where the strings are very expensive and you don't have the time or the, the, the expense to experiment with a lot of strings. So the end result, most players just use the strings they've always used. What if there's some way uh, virtually that people could try different strings? You know, you'd have a display at some at NAM or some show where people could come up and... Yeah, I haven't figured out how you could do that. The, 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 um, the only thing we could do is that, um, I mean, if when we're at shows, we, you know, we have strings around and, and if, if people want to try our strings, we're happy to, you know, them give them a sample and have them try it right then and there. So we actually um, encourage that. Um, as it turns out, we don't actually, we've discovered that we don't give um, free strings away that much because most of them never get used. Even players that want to try strings and they ask for a sample, if we just give it to them, um, a lot of times they forget about it. It's just in the case. And then there it is like a year later and they, they're very apologetic. You know, They say, oh, well, I, I wanted to try them. I just haven't had time. You know, Other things happen. So, so one of the most effective ways we found is that we actually... Um, if we can get them to try the strings there in the booth. Now, NAM is typically very noisy. And so, you know, it could be a problem there. But for some of the smaller shows, um, that's not so busy where it's, um, uh, we find that that's very effective. And we encourage that all the time. So if you come to our booths, for example, at uh, the Asta booth, um, you'll typically see us. There's always at least one person trying on our strings all the time. And, um, and we find that um, when we can get players to try our strings, more often than not, they will like our strings. Um, not everybody will like our strings or any particular brand, but, um, um, but if we can get people just to try them, 
they'll see the advantages of our strings and 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 have a, a an objective reaction to them. Uh, we're 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 not the biggest string company, and so typically, I think our biggest challenge is to get people to um, seriously consider us as a serious alternative to um, our biggest competitors who are um, been established and been around for a long time. Domestic Infill has been around for over 100 years and Parastro for several hundred years. And so they have uh, sort of instant credibility with um, all of their customers, rightfully so. For, but with us, some people still consider us as a guitar uh, string company uh, because we are the world's largest maker of strings and guitar strings. Um, and uh, so we're hoping that they will consider us as a violin string company as well, because we were making some fantastically, you know, good violin strings. What role does celebrity musicians play in the world of marketing strings? Is that a major factor? Um, it can be a factor. It's, I would say, um, um, the sort of a marketing issue is, is how to most effectively get your message across. We've, we use celebrities probably less than our other string companies because in the classical realm, uh, most of the major artists are using um, in our competitor strings. And uh, now we have a um, star-studded roster on the non-classical side because there, I think there, um, there's less uh, prejudice or bias for, against a, an American string company because even though we have an Italian name, we are an American string company. And especially classical musicians still look to Europe as part of the tradition and the gold standard. And uh, so there's either consciously or even unconsciously, there's a, um, a bias against an American string company. And, uh, but with non-classical musicians, that doesn't exist. So they evaluate our strings objectively for what it does. And if it works for them, they'll use it. It doesn't matter that it's coming from, from the United States. And in some cases, it's actually to our advantage because they prefer using American strings. It's made right here in the United States. Right. And they're, in some cases, playing what they consider to be fundamentally American music. American music, music exactly. Yeah. So it matches up perfectly. Yeah, it's good. Um, what role does uh, rosin, selection of rosin play? Is that you know, some people say rosin's rosin, really, but then there's people who make different kinds of rosins and say have yep. different properties. And when you design strings, are you in any way thinking about the rosin itself? No, when I design strings, I don't think about rosin, but rosin, um, there, there are differences in rosin, okay? The problem is not, there are no objective Measurements. Well, actually, there are some objective measurements um, and characteristics of rosin, but rosin is not sold on that basis. It's completely sold on the basis of mystique or whatever. Okay, all of those subjective things. Um, but um, let me talk about the objective things and what we do know about rosin. So, so rosin is a key component um, in the bowstring. It's not the horsehair. Uh, I just want to put this myth to bed. Um, that there are no barbs on the horsehair. Um, there, there are little scales, but the scales aren't that, it, it, it's not the barbs or the scales that um, produces the vibrations because if you've ever gotten back a rebowed, you know, a, a, a rehaired bow with no rosin on it, what happens? You can't get any sound out of it until you put rosin on it. So rosin is the key component. And uh, 
Rosin has a special characteristic that um, its frictional characteristics can change very rapidly depending on the, the actual temperature. Okay, and so a bowed string vibrates very differently than a plug string. It's, it's, it's vibrating in what we call a stick-slip uh, motion, where the, the string is actually stuck to the bow hair because of the rosin. It actually gets stuck to the rosin, which is on the, on the bow hair, for most of the uh, cycle of the vibration cycle. And then when it reaches its limit, it releases, and then we call it the, the slip. And then so, so for most of the portion of the vibration cycle, the rosin acts as an adhesive. But then when it finally slips, it acts as a lubricant. Okay? And that's um, what facilitates the stick slip, or what we call technically the Helmholtz motion of a, a bowed string. And so the characteristics of the rosin will affect how that stick slip works. Basically, to summarize sort of a complicated um, discussion of this, is that uh, rosins that generally have lower melting points and that are stickier makes it easier to start a bow stroke. Okay, and that is why bass players who have to move around this humongous, unwieldy bass string, it's very difficult to start, use very soft, sticky rosins compared to violinists, okay? But there is a downside and penalty of using an easier to play sticky rosin, which is that um, you don't have the same palette of tone that you can produce. There is less difference between the sounds you make using um, at different bowing forces and different bowing speeds if you use a, a stickier rosin. Sound you make is more similar and, and it's actually um, more difficult to play softly. So you're trading off um, sort of the ease of starting a particular note versus larger tonal palette. So for the really advanced players, um, the recommendation is that you should use a higher, less sticky, higher melting point, less sticky rosin because it will give you a much larger tonal color because um, you will have the technique to properly start a bow stroke that way. Um, beginners might want to use a stickier rosin. Um, but what you don't find on the cake of rosin is that the actual, for example, softening points or any um, technical data about the stickiness of the rosin. So you have to, you know, go by sort of uh, the packaging and, and sort of the sense. And, and so while it's really obvious that a cake of base rosin, and there are different types of, of, um, of base rosin. Some are much more stickier than others, but it's, it's obvious that most base rosins are much softer and stickier because you can stick your finger in it and it'll indent and it's versus a hard cake of violin rosin. But if you take um, uh, a bunch of violin rosins, unless you have sophisticated chemical analysis equipment or you run them sort of uh, um, through you know, the oven and, and do some um, crude um, measurements about the, the uh, softening points of rosin, you don't know the differences between that. So, so as an example, people often feel, oh, well, this particular dark rosins are stickier. Well, if everything else was completely equal, the stuff that they put in rosin to make it dark will make it just slightly stickier, but everything else is never equal. So, so if, you, if you buy a, a cake of uh, dark rosin versus a, a light cake from the same manufacturer who's made it identically, except for the, the dark versus the light. Yes, the, the, the dark one might be slightly stickier, but you can take 
a cake of rosin that looks very similar from one manufacturer and from another manufacturer, they can be very, very different, but look similar because they're not telling, you know, you don't have the technical um, um, specs for the rosin. Talking about mystique and mm -hmm. mythology and these right. other things that factor into decisions yep. we make, what is the benefits or the reality of using gold string for your E string? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think it's mostly psychological. I think, the, first of all, the, the plating, the gold plating on a gold-plated E string is very, very thin. It's incredibly thin. So it doesn't really affect the vibrational properties of the string. It can't. It's, it's, it's too small. It may affect, um, uh, to a certain extent, the, um, the frictional characteristics and its interaction with the rosin. Okay. In my experience, and talking to most people that are tend to be more objective about it, I found very few people of that ilk who think that a gold-plated E-string sounds that much different than um, a non-gold-plated E-string. And, and actually, most of us don't think that a gold-plated E-string sounds a whole lot warmer than a regular E-string. However, there are lots of people who are convinced that a gold-plated E-string sounds a lot warmer than um, a non-gold-plated E-string. And are they quite a bit more costly? They are because it actually um, costs a lot of money to put the gold plating on a gold-plated E-string. Because it, it because gold is so expensive, even the minuscule amount that we put on a string actually adds up to quite a lot of money. <laughs> then you have all kinds of security issues. Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of subjects. I know uh -huh. lunch has come and gone, and the factory's right. running again, and right. you've got a busy day. Right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We would also like to thank Lyris Hung with Diodario for helping set up this interview with Fan Dao. I interviewed Lyris, and a future podcast will feature that conversation. And I will leave you with the first three verses of a poem titled The Touch of the Master's Hand by Myra Brooks Welsh. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bid, good folks?' he cried." Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, not two, only two, two dollars. And who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three? But no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as sweet as an angel sings. Thank you.